Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, I'm Phil Dobby, and today on the Debunking Economics podcast with Steve Keen, for all Karl Marxists talk about a revolution, and there are Marxists still waiting for that time, well, there hasn't really been one, has there? Revolutions that have happened weren't really as Marx prescribed. But maybe what he advocated for has changed anyway. But could we be engineering a situation where a Marxist-style revolution could be on the cards anyway? Not that we advocate revolutions, of course, because as the Beatles sang all those years ago, when it comes to destruction, don't you know you can count me out? Besides, everything's going to be all right, is it? That's today on the Debunking Economics podcast. So Marx believed that the power play between the capitalists and the workers would create a class conflict that would ultimately end in a revolution. So, Steve, I mean, the the inevitable revolution, wasn't it? Because the bourgeois were making money off the surplus labor of the workers, and people would see the injustice in that. In fact, in the last paragraph of the manifesto of the Communist Party, he wrote, let the ruling classes tremble at a communist revolution. The proletariats have nothing to lose but their chains. They have a world to win. Now, to to an extent, we had that, didn't we? Because we had the union movement, uh, but it was decried by many, and of course, it, you know, it's basically died in this country. Uh, the revolution we've seen, if, if anything, has actually been in the bourgeois, the capitalists having even more influence in, in a position to take even more of that surplus labour, if indeed that is the problem. Uh, but also, of course, you know, they're make, making money out of having money as well. So the revolution has not happened in terms of the workers rising. The, the revolution has happened in terms of the rich basically making themselves richer. Well, I mean, I, I, I always try to put Marx in the context of what it would have been like to be in England um, in the you know, 18, 1840s to 1860s. Uh, which is when he did most of his writing. Uh, Added in forty four is when he when he got started getting into economics, and that was in Paris. And not long after that, he was uh, evicted from France. He says he's evicted from Prussia, and ended up in the UK, where the libertarian, uh, in, in that sense, the liber- liberal politics of the UK, relative to uh, <coughs> you know uh, uh, Prussia, which was quite you know, proto fascist in some ways, and France, which was uh, uh, you know remnants of Napoleon. Uh, he, he got a chance to practice uninhibited, uninhi- uninhibited for all that time. But what was it like at the time? Well, one thing that uh, that Marx and Jenny did at, at some, uh, Karl Marx and Jenny Marx did at some stage, was move out of Chelsea because of a cholera epidemic. Mm. Now I know things aren't particularly sanitary there at the moment, most of the best of times, but you don't get cholera anymore. Um, so if you want to think about, no, what, certainly not in Chelsea. Not in I mean, Chelsea, no, no. Yeah. Uh, thank God they go to those nasty Marxes. They probably improved everything. Uh, but yeah, it, it it was fundamentally uh, my picture of in, of England then was would be like India thirty or forty years ago. When um, mm. uh, you read the book, a suitable boy that, that uh, walking through uh, you know vast. Areas where tanning is occurring and the chemicals are 
of tanning are being breathed by people who are working in the tanning factories and often often sleeping there. The conditions were absolutely appalling. And, um, and what Marx saw as a revolution was getting away from that. But he also, a large part of what he saw as a revolution, we'd call the welfare state these days. It was, mm. you know, a unif- universal education, universal health care, et cetera, et cetera. And even so though, we've had it, yeah. in a way, we've had it then. I wonder what he yeah. predicted has, well, has, yeah. has happened. Because, I, mean, I mean, people talk about Marx and they talk about violent revolution. He never really advocated that, did he? No, he was, he was fundamentally he wanted democracy because at the same time mm. to be able, able to vote at the time, you had to be a landowner uh, or you had mm. to be a merchant. There were the, you know, the, the, the access to the vote when Marx was writing was based on your, if you're, if you're a landlord or a capitalist, you could vote. Um, forget about it if you're, if you're working class. So a, a lot of what we, uh, Marx called revolution then, we'd call, looking back on it, we'd call domestic, uh, democratic reform. Um, so, so, and if you read the, the the whole Communist Manifesto as well, a large part of it is a pay into capitalism. It's saying how capitalism has transformed uh, society, and previous social classes were all about maintaining uh, an existing situation. Capitalism and and the bourgeoisie are about transforming production, and Marx thought that as a very creative role for capitalism. But what he got wrong, and this is what I focus on, is that he, he, his, his basic principle in the, in the Communist Manifesto and in all his technical writing as well was that capitalism would divide the world into two classes. There'd be proletariat and bourgeoisie. You'd have mm. a, a tiny proportion who uh, had wealth and, and, uh, and lived off the labour of the majority, and the majority, you, would, you'd, you wouldn't have doctors and nurses and so on. You'd, you'd have uh, everybody be reduced to a wage slave. Now, what that got completely wrong was the enormous growth in the middle class because uh, uh, the, the apparatus of capitalism, at least for the last one and a half centuries, has been massively dependent upon a growth of a bureaucracy, both uh, the government bureaucracy, of course, but also bureaucracies inside mm. corporations, which which are far larger than the uh, neoclassical myth of perfect competition and far larger than Marx had in mind as well. And you, you, the bureaucracy to run that, rather than um, getting a a uh, division into, into two social classes, you had an enormous growth of a third social class that wasn't even on Marx's radar, and that was the middle class. So, the, But still this idea of surplus labour, I mean, that was that was key to it as far as he was concerned. And, I, I, I you know, I, I wonder whether... So you look at the union movement, for example. Was, was the strength of the union movement really about... Well, we want to get some more of that uh, of the, of that money which is generated by the surplus labour, or was it more about well, we just want better conditions because we've been living in in bad conditions. Sure, we may want a bit more pay, but I mean, there's a recognition, isn't there, that uh, you know, if you've invested in a business, you've got to get some return. You're the one taking the risk, so the money's got to come from somewhere, and that is going to be workers working harder than you're going to pay them for, in effect. Well, that's that's what Marx thought, and 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 if you look, you know, just just a bit of background here. Uh, when I became an academic it was back in 1987, and I did started doing a master's degree at the University of New South Wales, and what I wanted to do in that master's was to take a look at where the labour theory of value came from. Because back when I was an undergraduate student, back at Sydney University in 1973, we did a reading of Das Kapital. This is a typical thing a bunch of lefties do in the middle of a Sydney summer is sit in a darkened room in this main quadrangle of Sydney University, collectively reading uh, every chapter in Das Kapital, Volume 1. 
And while everyone else was down at the beach with the at girls. At the beach, yeah. I mean, I occasionally mm. hit the beach again. didn't hit the girls that early. But anyway, I hit the beach every now and then. Um, but yeah, uh, in reading it, I was sceptical about the labour theory of value because what it, what the labour theory of value says, apart from saying that, you know, capitalists exploit labour, uh, it was saying that machines provide no, machines provide no net surplus. Machines simply give to production what it costs to make them. And that just, I just couldn't swallow that. I remember walking across the campus one day with another uh, young lefty, a lefty lawyer, and we we could see all these kangaroo cranes on the on the uh, buildings in Sydney with a huge building boom going on at the time. I said, I I want a really good explanation by Marx as to why those machines aren't adding value. Well, what Marx argued was that uh, uh, before he wrote Capital, he argued that um, every, capitalists buy things at their cost of production and sell them at their cost of production. So you, you buy something what it costs to make it and you sell it what it costs to make it. So how do you make a profit? And his answer was that uh, when, you, when you buy a, an ordinary commodity, you pay its cost of production and you, you get the utility. Whatever you, you know, if you bought an apple, you, you pay its cost of production, you get the utility of eating an apple. So with, with, a, with a worker, you pay its cost of production and the cost of production are the means of subsistence. You've got to pay a worker enough money that they can buy what's necessary to stay alive for that day. Uh, but he said the working day, that let's say it takes six hours to make what's necessary to keep a worker alive for a full day, or you know, a worker and works as family. He said um, that working day can be 12 hours. So the first mm. six hours reproduce the cost, and then the uh, next six hours are a surplus that accrues to the employer just because they are the employment contract and that's so it's where like it's like s- sweating the assets isn't it really except the assets are human beings rather than pieces of machinery yeah well but, but he said that doesn't apply to a machine so if a machine takes you know a thousand hours to make uh, then it will give a thousand hours worth of output to the production but it won't mm. produce any surplus because there's this distinction between labor and labor power which didn't apply to any other commodity and that but his was, argument would his argument would be that wouldn't it that those machines still need people to operate them so those cranes oh, yeah. still have crane drivers for example yeah, yeah, it's you, just you, the, the, yeah. the crane driver is getting more uh, more results because he's got a crane to help him yeah but but it it it, it, it never made sense. It didn't make sense to me that the, that the machine didn't contribute anything. And when in reading Capital, uh, uh, at the same time, of course, I was you know revolting against the neoclassical idea about utility maximization and all the subjective theory of value that neoclassicals have. Uh, and the, so neoclassical will talk about marginal cost and marginal utility, blah, blah, blah. And I'd already rejected that by the time we started reading Marx. But in the first seven chapters of Capital, Marx starts talking about use value and exchange value. And what he, and, and, and what he argued was that in a capitalist economy, what matters, what dominates the society is the exchange value. You make something because you can sell it, not because you want to use it. Uh, so the use value of something goes into the background. The foreground of the interest of any capitalist system is the exchange value. Use value goes into the background. You said normally that ends up just being something that, you know, you, you pay for the cost of making a chair. Uh, the satisfaction, what you, what you get out of the care chair is the fact that you can sit in it. Um, there's no link between the two. They're incommensurable. And he, when he applied that to labor, he said, well, 
when you pay when you when you hire a worker you pay their exchange value which is their cost of production which is the means of subsistence what you get is their use value which is their capacity to do work for you they're incommensurable but this time around they're both quantitative one might be six hours of labor to make the exchange value they work for you for 12 hours that's how you make your profit and i thought brilliant argument absolutely love it and exactly the same argument applies to machines the mm. machine costs a thousand hours of labor to make. Uh, it might put the equivalent of two or three thousand hours of labor in, and the gap between is a profit. You can make a profit out of both. Now, Marx himself realized this when he first came up with the use value, exchange value stuff, but he buried it uh, in all in stuff that made it look like the whole, you know, labor th- the idea that it was these unique characteristics of labor that explain why I can make a profit, and that was. Now- he was, he was, his new development was right. His old one was wrong. And I think that's really, the, to me, that's the source of why there was never a socialist revolution. Well, that sounds like a point at which we could end the podcast, but we don't. Uh, we talk for another half an hour or so, uh, including why the fact that there hasn't been a, uh, a revolution so far doesn't mean that there won't be one in the future for the very reasons that Karl Marx outlined. Perhaps he was just got his timing a bit out. We'll look at why that is in the full version of this podcast. To hear that, you need to subscribe at debunkingeconomics.com or become a supporter of Steve Keen on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash prof Steve Keen. Uh, hopefully you'll do that. We'll see you back here. If not, we'll see you back here for the shortened version of the next one next week. Thanks for listening. 